and now from Acts and Romans, Acts 2. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And now from Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you please to join with me in prayer. Father, we pause again uh, just because it is so easy for us to forget uh, that you, the creator of the universe, are here with us right now. And you're not just here with us, but you're actually speaking to us in your word and at the very heart of who we are, your spirit is opening our minds and our hearts. And so knowing that, Lord, we ask for that very thing, that whatever you would have us to hear this morning, that you would enable us to hear and be changed by it, and that you would help me to speak faithfully in accordance with your gospel, in accordance with your word, that you would be pleased, that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So just yesterday, I was listening to an interview with uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks. Some of you might be familiar with him. And he was being asked about whether he held out any hope in such a disintegrated society with so many things seeming to be problematic of things getting better. And he said, yes, he does. And he said something that stuck with me. He said he believed change can happen when a small group of people find a better way and then others copy them. And I think that's right, and I think that's actually very similar to what we have been talking about in the last few weeks, that we believe God is calling us in his word to be Christ's beautiful church, not just for ourselves, but for the good of the world, to be a group of people who are led by Jesus into a better way. And this morning, as we're continuing to think about what that means, we are, as Nick has already said, wanting to consider the idea of community together. And community is a complicated idea. On one hand, everyone seems to agree that community is, is a good thing. People don't go, oh, I hate community. I don't want community at all. And yet, there is kind of a, another side to this because community involves getting close to people, involves some degree of commitment. And when we get close to people and when we commit to people, we open ourselves up to getting hurt, to getting exhausted because people are hard. And so there is something about community that has kind of a push and pull. We long for it, and yet we're also in some ways needing to protect ourselves from it at some times. And that push and pull nature of community is, is not something new. It's something the Bible says has existed almost from the very beginning of time. When God first made humanity, the very first person he made right after God made him, said, he said, it is not good for man, for a human being to be alone. Which was a striking statement if you think about it because this person, Adam, had a beautiful, perfect world, had dominion over the animals, had a direct relationship with God himself, and yet God says, this isn't good for this person to be alone. And what he is saying and what we're supposed to understand from the outset is that we have been designed by God for community. It doesn't matter how introverted you are, you and I need people. We, we feel this in so many ways. When we've seen a movie we love, we want someone else to have seen it as well. When we are going through something hard, we just want someone sometimes to sit with us. We need people because we were designed to love and we need someone to love. We need people because we are designed to experience love. Our greatest joys are found in connection with others. We were designed for a community. It is not good for us to be alone. And yeah, that's not the only truth that we see in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 3, we learn that the moment that sin enters the world, the moment that both Adam and Eve choose to be like God from their own understanding, to choose to try to take control, in that moment, they become a threat to each other. Uh, Theologian Henri Blochet describes the change that happened in this way. He says, When they rejected the divine reference that united them, that is God, each person claims the position of ultimate reference. Each one wishes to make the other his or her creature, an object to dominate. Each finds in the other a rival God and an independence that threatens their own. 
They will not be able to forget for a long time the danger that each holds for the other. When, when we desire to be in control, every other person, whether we think of it this way or not, is a threat to that. And so in human history, we see in so many different ways the tendency when it comes to relationships to, to use people, to manipulate, to dominate others. We see this when it comes to large scale. That's what wars are about. But it, it happens in subtler areas. It happens in our workplaces and the different rivalries. It, it happens sometimes even with friendships and unkind words. It happens in the tensions that are in the household. When, when we get in arguments with our spouse or with a close friend, why is it that we so need to be heard in that moment, that we so need to be right? It's because we want to be in control. The reality is not only is it true that our greatest joys are found in community, but so also are our greatest hurts found in relationships to others because people are hard. People can exhaust us. People can frustrate and disappoint and hurt us. And sometimes it seems like the safest thing to do to keep from that happening is just to keep everyone at arm's length. Sometimes we wonder whether maybe it is better for humanity to be alone. And if you think about it, actually, if you think about the course of human history over even the last 150 years or so, we have moved more and more in that direction, living as if that were true. It's striking when I try to think of a contrast. Imagine, you know, Hinsdale here, like in 1890, because I think this was founded a few years before that. So you have a few dozen houses. Imagine what life was like then. It's, it's almost impossible because it's so different. So if you were a typical family, the, you know, when the family woke up, the husband would soon walk to the train station, because there was a train station down in Hinsdale, and, and meet everyone else who was doing the same thing, and they would say hello to each other, and they would go to work together. Meanwhile, if you were the mom, most likely after the kids walked away to school, you would have to walk into town because you don't have a refrigerator, you don't have electricity, and so every day you would go to get food, and, and when you went into town, you would see all the other people who were doing the same thing that were also walking into town, and you would pass the time by talking with each other and, and pretty much at the end of it, no secrets were left. Everyone would know everything about everyone in this town. The kids come home from school and what do they do in the afternoon? They, they go outside and, and play with friends. And what, what's done for entertainment? Maybe you walk into town. Maybe, maybe you go over someone else's house over the weekend because that is what you did to make things interesting. My point in this is not to say those were the good old days and things have gotten so much worse. It's just to say that the very way life was was that your town was everything. And you needed each other for food. You needed each other for work. You needed each other for even entertainment. And think about how everything has changed over the last 150 years. Once electricity happens and refrigeration happens, suddenly you don't need to leave the house nearly as often. Once, once there's a car, now you're able to go to a much further radius. And as you go to different towns, you start interacting with people you don't know well. And it becomes more common to just kind of have this anonymous interaction, transactions with people. And then when the radio and then television comes, suddenly you don't need anyone else to entertain you. You have it right there. Why leave to play with others when you have this? And now, of course, we can be in the same room with each other, and yet, as we're looking at our phones, we can be in completely different universes. 
And our relationships increasingly are transactional, whether we're talking about Tinder or whether we're talking about social media, in different ways, we just get just enough of the other person to get what we need and nothing more. We have made it possible for the first time ever in human history to live without ever having to see another human face. And we've just demonstrated that over the last year, haven't we? And when you couple that with the drive that is in our culture for autonomy, that is, I want to do what I want without other people telling me what to do. And privacy, that is, I only want to show the things I want to show on social media and hide the rest. We are driven further and further into isolation. We are living a, an, an experiment right now of what happens when we live by the idea that it is good for man to be alone. And the results aren't terribly promising. In a, in a large-scale survey, survey just a few years ago, it was in 2018, nearly one in two people surveyed spoke of a dissatisfaction because they were feeling lonely much of the time during the year. One in two spoke of problems with loneliness. One in five said they don't have a confidence that they can speak to or someone that they feel close to. I was bowled over by that. One in five feel like they have no one to turn to when they need to cry. And, and that is having such a detrimental effect that even at a physical level, our, our bodies are crying out because of the loneliness. It, it affects us at a physical level. We are told by some studies that when we are by ourselves, it tends to, at the back of our mind, engage the fight-or-flight instinct. We're always kind of at a higher stress level, which means if you are more isolated, you are also more immunocompromised. 30% of people who are socially isolated, there's a 30% greater likelihood of heart attack or stroke. There is a 40% like, greater likelihood of early dementia. There is a 50% greater likelihood of early death for those who are socially isolated. See, what's happening is something similar to, I think, what happens when we feel depressed. Maybe some of you know that feeling of when we're just down in a way that, that's hard to pull out of. If you've experienced that, you know that in that moment, what you don't want is to be with people. Being with people just feels so tiring and overwhelming. It feels so much more comfortable just to be alone with Netflix. Except the more that you do that, the worse you feel, and the less you want to be with people, and the worse you feel, and it spirals and gets worse and worse. That's what's happened for our entire culture. Over generation after generation, people are so tiring, so let's get alone, and as we do that, things are getting worse and worse. It is clear from just data that God knows what he's saying when he's saying it is not good for man to be alone. And so we see a culture that is crying out for community even as it is terrified by it. And the question it's asking is how? How can we overcome all of those things that stand in the way, the way that we hurt each other, the way that we use each other, the way that we seek to dominate each other so that we can be connected to each other like we were made to be? So a few weeks ago, as we began this series, uh, we began with the idea that the fundamental conviction that our church is based on, that Christianity is based on, is that when Jesus rose from the dead, everything changed. 
that as Jesus rose from the dead with, with kingly power and authority, he began something entirely new, a new creation, a new kingdom where things were being made whole. And that new reality is, is being broken into this world in the church as he is changing things. As everything that sin has done, he is undoing and making whole. And that has everything to do with community. So one of the, the errors that the church, I think, made in the 20th century as it is seeking to explain the gospel to people who have not heard it, is it has been speaking in a very individualistic sense that the gospel is that Jesus died for you so that you can have your own personal relationship with God and be forgiven. And that, that all of that is true, but it is by no means the whole truth. What, what the Bible actually emphasizes that when Jesus died and rose again, he did this to purify for himself a people. That's what Titus 2 tells us. He, he died to create a new community, a, a kingdom. He died so that this ruptured relationship could once again be made whole and we could once again experience fellowship with each other in the way we were meant to. And, and that's what we see, actually, in the first passage that was read for us this morning. In, in Acts chapter 2, this is a dramatic moment in the life of the early church. The Holy Spirit has just been sent by Jesus, filling the disciples. They are proclaiming the gospel. Peter has just spoken to thousands, and thousands we see have become saved, have, were, were baptized, and, and they now are changed into this new devotion, this new energy, this new passion. It says they devote themselves to Jesus, to the teaching of the disciples day after day, but they don't just devote themselves to Jesus. As they are focused on the mission of Jesus, they become devoted to each other. I mean, did you, did you see some of the things that were described? It says that they are breaking bread together. They are daily seeing with each other. All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were together during morning and evening before work as they gathered in the temple to pray and to praise God and to listen to the teaching. And then at the end of the day, they went to each other's homes, 3,000 different people in each other's homes for massive dinner parties as they were celebrating the goodness of God together. And what's especially striking is it says, and they shared, they shared Everything in common. Those who had much sold what they had so that those who didn't have much could have. No one was poor. No one was alone. Community was formed through the power of Jesus. Now, what I don't want us to think is that this is saying this is how it's always going to be. That's, that's not what's happening. Just in the same way that paralytics weren't healed from every time evermore after he was healed in chapter 3, this is meant as a sign, a, a picture, something that's pointing us to the future and saying this is what the resurrection power of Jesus is doing. Get this in your memory. Think about this. Have this image to know this is where Jesus is taking his people to a community that loves each other, that shares everything, that is being made whole. That's what the gospel declares. And our calling as, as the church of Jesus that Jesus is at work in is to let him do the work he wants to do in us. Our calling is to understand what Jesus is doing as he's building a community and to take hold of it and make it our own as he is doing this work among us. And I want us just to consider with our remaining time what that means. So, so one thing that is at the very heart of how Jesus is, 
is, is taking this disparate group and he's rebuilding a community is that he is doing an identity change. Or better put, he has already transformed our identity. The Bible tells us that the moment that one places their faith in Jesus, something fundamental changes. They are no longer their own. They belong to Jesus. In fact, they are now united with Jesus. So, so I'm no longer just me. I am me in Jesus. That is who I am. And the Bible says when that happens, that's not the only thing that happens. As we are joined with Jesus, we are fundamentally joined with each other. Whether we feel it, whether we even want it, we are united to each other in Christ. That's now who we are. And in fact, that identity, that, that connection is so intense that the Bible actually uses the imagery of a body. Perhaps you noticed that in the passage in Romans 12. So in Romans 12, it's coming at the end of one of the great books of the New Testament that's describing all the great things that Jesus has done for us through his death and resurrection. And 12 basically is saying, and here's what it looks like for you to take hold of this. And, and in verse 3, one of the things it says as an application is we need to have a different mindset, a different way of viewing ourselves. Did you notice it says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. We need through Christ, to see ourselves differently. And how are we to think of ourselves? Well, verse 4, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another. We're supposed to think of ourselves differently where we realize that now, because we're united with Jesus, we belong to each other. We are members of the same body. If, if one part is hurting, we all hurt. We all contribute together. We are joined to each other, literally at the hip. The Bible uses another description, not a metaphor. This is actually saying who we are, speaking of, as, of us as the family of God. So I have um, almost a dozen nieces and nephews, some of whom I know well, some of whom I don't know well at all. But I'll tell you, it doesn't matter who it is. If it were, say, two in the morning, and I got a phone call, and they were saying, hey, we're stuck in O'Hare, and we don't have another flight for at least 12 hours. Could you come pick us up? Yeah, I would. I, and, and the reason I would, and my guess is you would too if you were in that situation, is it's not because I just have this deep affection for them. Some of them I just don't know that well. It's not because there's some rule that thou must pick up your niece or nephew at the airport. No, it's, it's an identity thing. They're family. That's what you do for family. And, and what Scripture says is that we are bound together by blood, by the blood of Jesus. We are truly family to each other. You are my sisters and brothers. That is who we are. 
And our calling is just to own that, to take hold of that, to recognize that. Do you notice when we, we confess the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, which might seem weird. Why do we say we believe that it exists? But it's saying something more. It's saying that there is a reality about the church that we don't always see, that we don't always experience, that we take hold of by faith, that we are one. When you say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, you are declaring to us, each other, you are my brothers and sisters, and I am responsible for you, because that's who we are through Jesus. Jesus has changed our identity so that we now are united to each other. And along with an identity change, he also gives us a new power. So, as we said before, that the real challenge, the thing that makes community so hard is, is sin, the sin that we have, the way that we have a tendency to hurt each other. And as Jesus saves us, he doesn't just leave us the way he, we were. He, he begins to change us so that we can learn to love each other the way that we were called to. And this is something that could take, you know, an entire multiple sermons and so I can't focus on everything about what that is, but I want to highlight just two ways that Jesus gives us this, this new power to make community with each other possible. And that is he enables us to share and he enables us to forgive. He enables us to share. You know, one of the things that is striking, as I've already said, in that picture of the church in Acts 2 is how they're willing to drop their guard and be vulnerable and share their stuff without worrying about what happens to each other. And, and what's going on? What's, what's going on that they're willing to do that? Because that's not how we normally are. We, we tend to protect ourselves. We tend to protect our stuff. And, and the reason is because we have a certain attitude of scarcity. We, we feel like we're just holding on to things. We're feeling we're just holding on to our own life. We, we need to protect what we have because we don't think we have much to give. But here's what happens when Jesus starts changing us. As we come to know Jesus and know what it means that we're loved by God, as we come to recognize who we are in Jesus, we come to realize we have everything. You know that song we sing, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ is not a complaint. It is a glorious statement because if all I have is Christ, I have everything. And what happens is that moves us from a place of scarcity to a place of abundance. If we have everything, we don't need to protect. We don't need to be like this anymore. We can be like this. It enables us to share with each other. It enables the church to be what it's meant to be, and that is a potluck. I think sometimes we still get in our mind that a church is more like a restaurant, that it's a place where a few professionals get everything ready and the rest just kind of come and sit and enjoy. But it's not. It's a potluck where everyone brings their own things, their own gifts. They share and everyone celebrates in the sharing. Now, in one sense, you could say this is a metaphor for what happens on Sunday morning. Everyone comes with something. Sure, some of us are up front, whether doing music or, or, or teaching. But all of us bring our voices to join in song. All of us bring our prayers. All of us bring our attention. All of us bring our willingness to serve, whether it means to help out with the young children so that we can care for others, whether it means overcoming our introvertedness and saying hello to the newcomer. We all come. It's a potluck. 
But we're talking about more than just Sunday morning. Sunday morning is just one moment. Church is not an event, it's an identity. We're talking about sharing together throughout the week. We're talking about, as Galatians says, carrying one another's burdens. When one person is hurting, we bring our energy, we bring what we have to help carry that person. We, when, when someone is rejoicing, we all share in that joy and delight with them. It's about sharing our lives, not in the same way with everyone. Oh, we can't be transparent with a hundred whatever people, but with some people in our congregation, it involves opening up our lives to each other because that's what happens when the Spirit is at work. Jesus empowers us to share. Speaking practically, what that means at a just very basic level is that if we want to allow Jesus to do what he intends to do in us, we will need to plan on community. We like to think of community as this largely organic thing that just happens naturally just by following the whims of the moment. But think about what we said. Every societal force, whether we're talking about technology, whether we're talking about culture, whether we're talking about the way that work wants every minute of your time and your child's, you know, like all the programs that your children are supposed to be involved in, hyper-schedule, if we don't fight, we will not experience community as God intends us to. You have to plan or else your whole week will get devoured by everything else. So I want to encourage us to plan on community. That, of course, begins with what happens as we have our kind of family gathering on Sunday morning. You know, there's going to come a time in a few months where we will shut off the feed. And the reason for that is because once COVID is done, we think the thing that matters is not just the content, it's the coming together. But it's not just Sunday morning we're talking about. The planning has to involve throughout the week. This is why we have community groups or discipleship groups. It's simply just putting something on the calendar that allows us to live together, to pray together, to pursue Christ together. But it doesn't have to take that form. It can be just planning on going to a park together, having meals with each other, going to Costco. There are so many ways, but I will tell you it will not happen accidentally. Jesus desires to bring us together, and one of the ways we take hold of that in our obedience is allowing our calendars to reflect that. We must plan on community. That's how we share. The second way that Jesus um, enables community to be possible is through giving us the power of forgiveness. And this is, this is such a big topic, such a hard one. I wish we could spend way more time on it than we have the time for this morning. It's, it's, it's complicated because as, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I, I realized that there are many of us here who have been hurt deeply by fellow church members, whether it's sometimes even a leader or even just a fellow congregation members, and we're still feeling the scars of that. Some of you maybe are even feeling right now, whether it's exclusion or whether there's judgment or whatever. And so when we're talking about sharing everything, about being connected to each other, it's, it's scary. And I don't want to excuse the sins that have taken place. As much as they are painful to you, God is grieved even more deeply at them than we are. And, and this is not something to just turn a blind eye to. Wherever there is sin, we need to constantly be in the process of repenting as Jesus remakes us and renews us as his community. 
But here's the thing that I do want to say. I am struck by how again and again, whenever the New Testament speaks about how we're supposed to live together as his community, it speaks about forgiveness. And what I love about that is that's just wonderfully realistic. The Bible is very clear that as we are trying to live into this newly formed community that Jesus is building, it will be messy. Because it is still a process, because there is still sin, there will be hurt. And so the only way that true community can happen in this broken world is if there is lots and lots and lots of forgiveness. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why community is so hard in our day. Our, our culture does not have the tools to know how to forgive. But we do. Because our fundamental identity is that we are people who have been forgiven much. And so I want to invite us to commit in our hearts, each of us, to forgive, to Forgive each other for not yet being wholly Christ-like. One of the hard things about being in the position that I'm in is I know that there are going to be times that I blow it. There are going to be times from up here that I'll be saying something that's more guided by my pride than it is guided by the Spirit. There are going to be times sometimes where I will, in conversations, not see you because I'm too self-absorbed. And, and you will feel that. And there are going to be times with each other where you will feel hurt by the other person. You share this personal prayer request and someone just tries to fix it. You feel excluded from a group because of insensitivity. Someone says something that voices an opinion that just seems so ignorant and, and hurtful. And, and the tendency that we will have when we come up against this, because these are tiring, these are frustrating, these are real, is to just say, you know what, I'm not angry, but I'm just going to step back. Not realizing that stepping back actually is an expression of anger. And I want to encourage you, rather than leaning into that, to lean into a different reality, to lean into the reality that Jesus loves you and has forgiven you completely. And as you savor that reality, to let that forgiveness flow through you and forgive others for also being someone who are not wholly Christ-like. Because the reality is, even as they hurt you, you are hurting them. And the only way forward is if we have this joint commitment to forgive. And not just forgive each other for not being wholly Christ-like, but I want to encourage you to commit to forgive this community for not yet being the ideal community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote this wonderful book called Life Together, was speaking about the, what, what, what is a community killer in the church. And he said, what stands in the way of true, real community is the ideal community. And what he means by that is that each of us, or at least many of us, have in our minds some idealized view of what community should look like. And when we come up against something that is not that, because it is not yet 
perfected. We feel frustrated and we feel disillusioned. And so our dream of community and how it should feel keeps us from being able to engage in the real community that God has given us. And so I want to encourage you to not allow your vision of the ideal community of what it should be to stand in the way of the real community that God has given you. This church, I want to say just transparently, I continue to be just so incredibly grateful for what I see happening in this church, how I've experienced it, the way I see how, how people love each other, the way I've experienced love and humility and unity. There is so much that I'm just at times truly awed by. And yet I know that we are not there yet. I know that there are some of you who are experiencing the fact that we are still a sinful community who haven't gotten things right. All of us will experience it at times. And what I want to ask you is because of who you are in Jesus, because of the power Jesus has given you to forgive, to forgive this community for not yet being the ideal community. And then to move forward with us together as we pursue becoming that community as we let Jesus remake us. Because I, I'm convinced, to kind of paraphrase what David Brooks said, I am convinced that, that culture, that people can be changed when a small group of people are led by Jesus into a better way. And I believe that is what God is calling us to do. And so even now, I invite us to just take a moment to hear God's word, to reflect where maybe God has been speaking to us if we need to confess our sins, to confess, and, and then to turn to God to ask for help as we seek to make Jesus' work in us more and more true of us.